15 in your copy of the Word of God. And I'd like for you to rest your eyes on verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and sung the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glory by your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Let us pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for all that our ears have already heard, our hearts have felt. God, give us a heart like yours. May we care about those who know you not. May we open up our mouths that the Spirit of God may quicken those who are yet dead in their sins. And we've been so careful to give you the praise and the honor that you alone deserve. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. The church said amen and amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Now, as I was reading that passage, I realized that the message is not an eschatological sermon. It's not going to be about future things, end-time things. And since we have two seminarians sitting on the front row now, praise the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Uh, most of you who don't know that term will soon forget it, but reading a passage like that makes you want to really delve in to what is happening on God's panoramic scope of things that he has already revealed in his word. But for the sake of what we're going to be dealing with today, let me say a couple things, and we haven't, this is not connected directly to the sermon. One of the things that the Lord tells us to do is to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so we need to be and want to be a place as a church where people feel encouraged, including the pastor, <laughs> lively encouragement. You're not going to get it outside of the world unless the world is trying to lead you away from Christ, and then they will be hard, hardy in their cheers to help to be a part of the deception of the, of the devil. But this is the place where we ought to be giving kudos for what God is doing. And so we have two seminary students. Let's give the Lord some praise. Amen. And if the Lord didn't tell you to go, he didn't tell you to go. But we will celebrate those who are 
taking that arduous step. We also have a Bible school student who just started, uh, Brother Stephen Heyman, Jr., so we thank the Lord for his commitment. Uh, we have too many people who just want to jump on YouTube and uh, pound their chest, and they haven't taken the time to even learn their name, let alone teach the Bible. And we also want to say that we don't want any of the brothers backsliding. Uh, uh, when you're in church, you're in church to hear the word of God. And just want to encourage the men to be mindful of that, that we have been given the charge of leading our families. And so we don't want to leave here the way we came and just be physically present in the building. And the Holy Spirit knows who that was meant for. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now we can begin our sermon for today. Amen. Amen. On three separate occasions this week, I sat in the presence of three terminally ill people after introductions were complete. I found it interesting that each one of those adults began to talk with me about the things that are happening in the world, in particular in the political arena. And I've already said if you pay too much attention to national news, uh, you will be driven to medication or alcohol. They shared also about their friends and family, and, and usually I'm, I know that in talking to people that are dying, uh, they're, they're kind of circling the airport to see if they can land in a safe place to talk about what is really foremost on their hearts. One woman said to me, I, I feel like God has giving me a death sentence. My mind has become a prison that holds me captive to thoughts of death every single day. I wonder if this is the day. All three people were professing Christians, but their world had a dark, ominous cloud of sadness and depression hanging over it daily. No favorite song or food, friends, family, clothes, nothing that you could present to them would remove that agonizing feeling that this is not about someone else, this is actually me that has been gripped with a disease that there's no medical solution for. One man said it was like the shadow of death. He said, as I think about my own death in this shadow that we pray about, yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This man is saying, I'm living that, and the thought of this shadow wherever I go, like the reflection of our own shadow, he said, I'm terrified. What do you do when you feel like hell 
on earth is staring you in the face through your life experiences. Just think about the worst thing that could ever happen to you, the worst news that could ever be given to you, and it's right in your face, and no matter where you go, you can change mirrors, you can change locations, you can change the conversation, but no matter what you do, the same scenario still exists. Hell, for you, is right in your face. What do you do when you pinch yourself and you are certain that you're having a nightmare only to discover it's not a dream? How do you handle all of the injustices, the corruption and rejection, the finality that you're not going to bounce back? You're not going to. Remember, as a woman said, this is my fourth bout with cancer, and each type of cancer has been different. And she said, I have a GI bleed right now, and I'm listening to her and watching her. And, and she didn't look like she was that ill, but here she was again. This time, the cancer is not going to go into remission. What do you do when the bad guys always seem to be winning? Back in the day, when we were young, we would be watching the Cowboys and the Indians and the Long Ranger and Tonto, and things would just be so bad and dark, but you always knew that by the end of the episode, the guys in the white hat, the cavalry, the cavalry was coming, and the good guys would always win. How do you handle it when the good guys don't win? I want you to know that in Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle John got a glimpse of heaven while hell was breaking out across the face of the earth. God gave him a vision where physically he did not move anywhere, but he was teleported in the spirit to the very courts of heaven where he was able to see life experiences from the perspective of God's eyes. I want you to know that when things just don't seem to be turning out right, that you can see heaven while hell is staring you in the face. John got a glimpse of heaven. What John sees is like you and I standing at the peak of the tallest mountain. And while chaos in the valley has broken loose, because of your elevation, you're able to see a cavalry coming. You're able to see that victory is on its way. You're able to see beyond the conflict and know that the outcome is not going to be determined by what's currently happening. 
When you are able to look at your life experiences, it doesn't matter how tight the finances are or what the doctor has said. When you can see your hellish experience from a heavenly vantage point, I tell you, you'll be all right. You can, say I can, see heaven when hell is staring me in the face. Now, before we look at heaven, while hell is staring us in the face, let me just share a few things about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written, was not written to cause us frustration, fear, false doctrine, or as some, they all, all they want to talk about is in times of fanaticism. It's really interesting when you, you start talking about men growing in their faith. The first thing they want to say, let's say the book of Revelation. Let's say, no, 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 no. It was not written for fanaticism, false doctrine, frustration, or fear. But the book of Revelation was written in the past about the future for present day living. It was written in the past about the future for present-day living. God wants us to live in the present with heaven on our minds. That's why we have the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that says, if you read it, God says, I promise you, you'll be blessed. There's a blessing attached with just reading the book. And so John, like us, was in a dark place, but he was able to see heaven. Now, the first thing I want to consider with you is who John was. Who was this John that wrote these words as he was supernaturally superintended by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit to record these words about the future for our present-day living? Well, John was one of the original apostles who Jesus handpicked. He was one of the 12. He was taught by the greatest teacher who ever walked upon the face of the earth, and his name was Jesus for three and a half years. John was one of the 70 that was sent out by Jesus in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is not with the harvest. It's not with souls that are ripe unto salvation, and as bad as things are, from a gospel perspective, this is the best of times because people need Jesus more than ever before. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that laborers would respond and go to Thailand and go to Jerusalem and Judea and unto the uttermost parts of the inhabited earth. John was one of those evangelists who shared his faith. He was also one of the disciples who, were, who was able to see the transfiguration of Jesus. And man, would I have loved to be with Jesus that day in Mark chapter 9 when Christ went to the mountain. He didn't take all of the 12 disciples. He took Peter, James, and John. The Bible says that while they were with Jesus on the solitary mountain, that the appearance of Jesus was altered, was transformed, and the radiance of his clothing and face was so different that there was, there was nothing 
humanly to compare it to. It was nothing less than the glory of God on display. I love the apostle Peter. He said he recognized that something was wrong about this scene. We've gone to church before. We've been in Bible study before, but it ain't never been like this. And he asked the question, should we build an altar for all? Because for, for, Elijah and Moses appeared. And so he said, they're supposed to be here, but not us. Maybe we ought to build an altar for all three. And then the voice of God spoke, this is my beloved son. Hear you him. And then he, Moses and Elijah two of Israel's greatest prophets, they disappear. But John was on the scene when Jesus, can you imagine, would you have loved to have been in the presence of the Lord when, he's been tra- when he was transfigured? John was in the room when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, Tabitha, who had died. The Bible says that they were professional uh, uh, weepers or mourners and back in the New Testament, Old Testament, they would pay you to cry when somebody died. They bring you to the funeral and you, you crying and, and ink sobbing and trying to get in the casket and all that because you were paid. When Jesus arrived, he again only brought Peter, James, and John. And he sent everyone else out of the room and he called forth Tabitha, called her by name. It's interesting that he called her Tabitha. He didn't say little girl because if he said little girl, all of the little girls that had died would have come forth. But he called her, and death had to let her go. It was John who was in that room. And and then Jesus said this, the one who was dead is now alive. And when those who were outside of the room heard it, they laughed until Tabitha came walking out of that door. Would you have liked to have been with John and James and Peter? John was the one who rested in the bosom of Jesus at the Last Supper. He is the one that Jesus said, he is the one I love. He was the beloved disciple. He was a member of the inner circle on the day that Jesus was about to be, when Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he says, let's go to my prayer closet. And when you study the word, Jesus had a prayer closet, and it was called the Garden of Gethsemane, and and the 12 were with him, and the Bible says they were weary, and he, the, 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 Eight of the 12, they went somewhere and went to sleep, but he he called Peter, James, and John. He said, come near to me because my heart is weary and I just need some prayer partners. You ever need somebody to pray with you? You ever need somebody to hold your arms up when you weep? So he called Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. And Christ began to pray. And three times he went to talk to his prayer partners and they were all sleeping and snoring, and I can just see him slobbering. He said, could you not pray with me for an hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But John was one of those who Jesus considered a part of his inner circle. It was John who was the only disciple at the cross when Jesus was crucified. It was John who Jesus says, woman, behold thy son, and son, behold thy mother. And he said, John, I want you to have the responsibility of caring for my mother. It was John who assumed the responsibility of caring for the mother of Jesus. This was a special guy. This wasn't just some ordinary disciple. He's a part of the inner circle. The Apostle John is responsible for three of the epistles, 1 John 1 through 3. 
He's also the author of the, of, of the book, the narrative about the life of Christ, the book of John, one of the longest New Testament books. It was the apostle John who God gave the revelation, the apocalypsis, the, the revelation of Christ. He was the one who wrote the book of Revelation. I'm talking about somebody who was super special. Anybody know what I'm talking about? On top of that, all of the other disciples, by the time the book of Revelation is written, all of the other disciples, they're dead. He's the last surviving apostle. But I want you to know his most distinguishing characteristic was not all the things that I just shared about his resume. Yes, he, slept, he laid his head in the bosom of Christ. He was the one that Jesus loved and all the other things I said. But his greatest credential was his B.A. degree. John was born again. He was born again. He was the one who heard Jesus say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisees. He said, Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto you, except the man be born a second time, he cannot see, you cannot comprehend, you cannot know the king or the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. John was able to see heaven while Hell was staring in the face because he had his B.A. He was born again. You've got to be saved to be able to see heaven, to be able to see what God sees. The Bible says, eyes have not seen, nor has entered the hearts of men what God has prepared for them who believe in him. In other words, before you can hear and see and even comprehend the things that God has that are concealed from the world, you have to have a personal relationship with Christ because a natural man receives it. Not to think, come on now, that comes from the Spirit of God. You need the Spirit of God. You need to be born a second time. Some months ago, I got a shocking call from my oldest son. When he shared what he had to say to me, I kind of grabbed a hold of my, my table, and he said, Dad, I purchased tickets for you. Oh, he brought something for his father. <laughs> he said, you're all right, Dad. You know, I first said, oh. <laughs> he said, um, can you go to the 76ers game? He said, but you have to come tonight. I said, the game is sold out. He said, don't worry about it, Dad. I got a ticket for you. I said, well, it's a, it's a very popular team. It's going to be a standing room only, and I don't want to just come down. And he said, Dad, I got a ticket for you. Head on down to the game. So I get in my car and drive on down to the Sixers. They're playing the Toronto Raptors, and I just get there, and there's a line going all the way around the building, and it's freezing cold. I don't have a ticket. My son's nowhere in sight. So he had told me. I called him and said, where are you at? He said, Dad, just go to the VIP section. Some of you don't know what that is, but VIP sex. I said, okay. <laughs> so now we're talking about tickets that cost somewhere in $200, $300 range. So I'm heading to the VIP section, and I bump into one of the staff person. I said, where's the VIP section? He said, follow me. He just stopped whatever he was doing. I said, well, don't have to get in line. Oh, you don't have to get in line. You're VIP. So I just follow him, and then I get to the, the booth, and we go right inside. We ain't standing out in the cold. I said, well, sir, I don't have a ticket. Don't worry about it. What's your name? So I give him my name. And so he goes up to the counter. He said, Mr. Benson and so forth. And he pulls out two tickets. And then he not only pulls out the two tickets, he said, follow me. He directs me to a seat. We're right next to the, I mean, we're all, of, I mean, they got the indoor where you can watch the game and all of that. And, and I'm still saying, 
is this my love? I'm waiting for him to get arrested or something. But, <laughs> but when I thought about that experience, and my son did actually arrive, we had an amazing time. How was it that I was able to see the game when everybody else is standing outside in the cold and some people couldn't even get in because it was sold out? I want you to understand because I was able to get in because the price of the ticket had been paid in full. Somebody had made reservations for me, and all I had to do was to accept the reservation, accept the ticket. Somebody say amen. And because I accepted the ticket, because you had accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, the price for your sin has been paid in full by his precious blood. And you get to see heaven. Everybody else is in hell and experiencing the pain and the agony and the, and the frustration and the fear. But I am glimpsing because I have a special invitation paid in full. Now, when did John get a glimpse of heaven while hell was staring him in the face? Look at Revelation chapter 14. Verses 1 and 2. Chapter 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him was 140,000 having, I'm saying chapter 14. I really mean chapter 4. How about that? I'm going to be preaching another sermon there. Are you still with me? Chapter 4, it says, Beloved, how about that? Still, now I'm in John. I'm getting there. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Y'all praying for me? Amen. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Say heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which you must take, which must take place after this. Immediately, I was in the what? Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one who sat on the throne, and he who sat on the throne was like Jasper, Sardis, and so forth. But what's interesting is. Chapter 1 in the book of Revelation deals about the past, what had already happened, chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with what was the present, the seven last churches. But when you get to chapter 4, he says, I must tell you the things that will happen. So chapters 4 through 22 deal with the future. But it was, the Bible says, that the, when he got a chance to see what was going to happen from heaven's point of view, the scripture says in verse 2 that it was when I was in the spirit. Did you see that? He says, once I was in the spirit, and therefore, there before me was the throne of heaven. It wasn't until he was in the spirit. If you're going to see heaven while hell is staring you in the face, you need to be in the spirit. 
The apostle Paul helps us with this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He says, this I say, walk in peripatia, one step at a time. Walk while in the spirit and you will not, what, fulfill the lust of the flesh. When I'm in the spirit, even though hell is all around me, I don't have to give in to my flesh. Because God has not given me the spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind. And God tells me, be anxious, what? For what? For nothing, but in all things, by prayer, with supplication, let your request be made known unto God. And this is what happens when you're in the spirit and hell is breaking out all around you. The peace of God that passes all comprehension. Guard your heart. Unfortunately, we attach being in the spirit with emotionalism. If you ain't shouting and running around the church and doing backflips and speaking in tongues, you're not in the spirit. But I was reminded of a story in Acts chapter 16 when you get a chance. Verses 16 through 18, the apostle Paul and his partner Silas are in the city and they're planting and considering planting a church. And every day they're walking through the city and they're doing door-to-door evangelism in there. The Bible says that they're praying and, 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 and they're telling people about Jesus and folks are getting saved. And while they're doing this, there's a woman who has the spirit of divination, who has a demonic spirit, and she's following Paul and, and Silas, and she's saying that they are, they, she, she's actually saying, using spiritual terminology, these are servants of the Most High, and they're telling people about Jesus. These are servants of the Most High, and every day when Paul and Silas would try to lead somebody to Christ, this woman would be tagging along with them, and then finally, And the scripture says that she was shouting when she did this. She was shouting. She was in the spirit, (laughs) but it wasn't God's spirit. And the Bible says that these, she said, these men are servants of the most high who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And the moment that he said that the spirit, the evil spirit had to come out, she was a fortune. She could tell the future. Satan has limited power to see into your future. So you can go to the palm reader. You can go to the necromacist. Somebody can tell you about your future, but it won't be the future that God has for you. Now notice who was doing the shouting. Notice who was drawing attention to themselves. It wasn't the apostle Paul or or Silas. It was the woman who was demonically possessed. I want you to understand that when we're in the spirit, you're not going to always be shouting. You're not going to always be running. You're not going to always be acting out in a public way. But you're going to be resigned in your spirit to, to stand in the armor of the Lord and to be faithful to him. Because being in the spirit means that you are captivated. You're under the control of the spirit. You are activated. You are the control of the spirit is causing you to do what you're doing. For as many as are led by the spirit, they are the sons and the daughters of the Lord. 
and you are motivated. You're not trying to impress people because anything that you do in the flesh does not please the Lord. And so to be in the spirit means that you're captivated, activated, and motivated. Simply said, you're yielded, dependent, reliant, controlled by. Now, you can go out and get you some good reefer or whatever. I don't know what they call it today. I'm sorry. I didn't give my age away. Oh, Lord. Cannabis. <laughs> and you can go from being uptight and totally chilled. Now, the reason why you're no longer uptight and stressed out and anxious is because there's something controlling your spirit. And under your altered state of being controlled by something other than the spirit of God, you will be controlled by that, by that, by that spirit. And so the scripture says that when we, want to, when we are in the spirit, the Bible says, be filled with the spirit, not controlled by anything else. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, you can do amazing things. And so if you want to see heaven in the midst of whatever you're going through, you need to be in the Spirit. Some of you wouldn't know what that was if it slapped you in the face. You just need to be obedient to the Word. When the, word, when the, when the Spirit of God who lives in you, if you're saved, so you need to be saved first. You need to be Spirit-filled secondly to see heaven. But here's something else. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, turn, turn there with me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Can you get there? Same book of the Bible. The scripture says, I, John, say I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. Say Patmos. For the word of the Lord, because I killed somebody, because I robbed the bank. Isn't that what he said? For the word of the Lord and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. It was on the Lord's day that he said, I was in the spirit. Now, it's really interesting. So what he did that helps us to understand that if you're going to see the Lord and the kingdom of heaven, you need to sanctify the Lord's day. He said, on the day of the, on, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day in the New Testament is the first day of the week. That's why we don't do as a seven-day Adventist worship on a Saturday, because it was on the Lord's day, the first day, that was the day of, the, the church was born on the day of Pentecost. The 50th day was when the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. It was the first day of the week. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus had been laying in the tomb for three days, but it was early Sunday morning that he got up. And because he got up on the first day in, in the New Testament church, sanctified, set that day aside. That's why we worship. 
Sometimes you just need to make your way out to the Lord's house. You need to get here on the Lord's day. I know you could watch this on, on live streaming and TV or YouTube, but there's something about setting aside the Lord's day. The Bible says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves as a manner of some is, but exhorting you need to get out of here and get here to the place of God where the people of God are. Walking away from your hellish experiences, walking into a place where you can see heaven. I wonder if you can see a little bit of heaven now. As you turn your attention to the word of God, as you turn your attention from your thoughts, it was on the Lord's day. He sanctified the Lord's day. You need to have a day. There was a time when we didn't wash clothes. We didn't do grocery shopping. We didn't play no fast music. We call it fast music. Bars are open. Houses of prostitution are open. We have not sanctified the Lord's day. We come to church when we feel like it and we think we're doing God a favor. But every time you come, you get blessed. The devil is a liar. He doesn't want you here. He doesn't want you setting aside the day, the, a day of the Lord. You need to be here. Because sometimes somebody has just what you need to hear or, or see to give you a glimpse of heaven while hell is staring you in the face. So he was saved in the spirit, sanctified the Lord's day, and he was able, because of those things, to get a glimpse of heaven. Have you sanctified the Lord's day? Are you saved? Are you in the spirit? But he also was suffering. This is a hard part. He said, I, your brother, am going through tribulation. The old folks, you say, I'm tribulating. That's affliction. That's trouble. That's conflict. And sometimes we can handle conflict, like this lady said. We never smoked. We didn't drink. We didn't stay up late. We went to church all the time, and we lived healthy, and we were married for 49 years. Same man, same woman, and here I am with cancer. Husband just walked outside to take the trash out and tripped and broke his neck. How could this be? John's on the island of Patmos, an isolated place, a dark place. You ever been in a dark place? Have you ever been somewhere where your heart is just hurt and the tears start coming and you just can't stop crying and it seems like nobody cares? No matter how many times you tell it, it just doesn't take the pain away. John was in that place. He said, because of the word of my testimony, and my commitment to Christ. He had done nothing wrong, but he was suffering. Sometimes we think that God is angry or God has forsaken us. And therefore, we focus on our pain, on our, on, on our, on our diagnosis. But John said, I was in the spirit. Even though I was on the island of Patmos. I was in the dark place. I was in pain. I was suffering, but ah, 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 ah. I was in the spirit. Isn't it interesting that in our island of Patmos experiences, those dark places, those painful places, 
Marriage isn't going right and the children are acting crazy. The money is funny that God meets us there. Hagar was fleeing from the presence of her jealous mistress or mistress, Sarah, who was very upset that she had had Abraham's baby, even though she said, Abe, have a baby. <laughs> At first, surrogate parent in the Bible. And Hagar got really pregnant. I could just see her about three in the morning texting Abraham. I need a pickle. I need some ice cream. Can you come and scratch my feet? <laughs> I want you to know when women are pregnant, brothers are too. We go through it too, amen? Amen, Brother Anthony? Amen. Come on now. It gets better. The baby gets born and keeps you up all night. But before that baby can come, there's going to be a labor and delivery. But on the other side of the labor and delivery. But it was Hagar as she's fleeing from the presence of her master's wife. And her son is literally, Ishmael is dying in her arms. And she's crying out. And she hears a voice from God. And he says, I have not forgotten you. I see you. And the Bible says she called that place El Roy. I. The Lord has seen. How many of you know in your dark places, you can meet him as El Roy, the one who sees, the one who knows, the one who cares. But you wouldn't have known it like that until you got in your dark. Abraham lifted up the knife preparing to drive it through Isaac's heart as a sacrifice. And a voice said, Abraham, Abraham, do your son no harm. Over there in the thicket is a ram. The Bible said, and he called that place Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> the Lord provides. I want you to know that some of us, have gotten in our dark places. You didn't have the money. You didn't know where it was going to come from. But Jehovah Jireh. He revealed himself to Moses at the place of the bitter water in Myra. He revealed himself as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. He said, if you obey me, none of these diseases that have befallen the Egypt shall come upon you. But all that's Old Testament. It was while John was on the island of Patmos, he said, I heard a voice behind me from heaven. And the angel said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I know it looks bad right now, but I'm the beginning and the end. You're in the middle right now, but I'm the end as well as the beginning. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him on your island of Patmos? Sometimes we just need to look at him and let him reveal himself for who he is. Isaiah said, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Adonijah, 
the Lord of hosts, the one who reigns, the one who is sovereign. The man, mankind's throne was empty. Why the White House is crazy. The Congress is crazy. The Senate is crazy. But Adoniah, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord of hosts is yet sitting on his throne. Have you seen him as Adonijah? I'm going to close with this. We ain't getting to the rest of this. Uh, it's online. I'll send you the outline. One of my favorite movies is the Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Some of you have seen that. It ain't for everybody. Pastor, look at those kind of movies. We had somebody invite us to go to the movie. They paid for my wife and I. We get there, and it's uh, the, the funny guy, the, Chan, Chan, the, the Japanese guy, and Jackie Chan, and Rush Hour. No, not even Rush Hour. He had, who, who's the black guy, the comedian? Chris. Oh, yeah, Chris Tucker. And every time Chris Tucker says something that the lady who paid for her husband paid for her ticket. She punched me in the leg. See that pastor? See that pastor? I left there wounded and bruised. They invited us to the movies. They paid for our tickets. But the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, I wish I could tell you what he saw. And, but anyway, in the movie, the two key characters are Andy Duchesne and Morgan Freeman, who is red. Now, Andy Dufresne is framed. He is accused, he's tried, convicted, and given a life sentence in one of the most notorious prisons in America. Some of you remember that. And when he gets there, he has some of the most horrific experiences. He's beaten, he's raped, he's stabbed, he's put in isolation. Uh, he was really put in a position where he was forced to either live like an animal or die. And then he meets Red. Stand with me. And Red is also a lifer, but he's in prison for crimes that he committed. So he and Eddie Dufresne, they begin to have conversations. And Eddie would, Andy would ask him, he said, what would you do if you ever got out of prison? He would be silent, and they said, let me tell you what I would do. And then Andy would begin to describe beaches and beautiful yachts and fish and, 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 and cars and uh, uh, antique cars and what he would do to get under the hood and what parts he would think. And I mean, he'd be so, so uh, articulate and clear and detailed in his expressions. You could literally see the places and the sand on the beach and the sun and the sky and the birds and the seagulls. And it was like, oh, man. It was almost like he was there, even though he was in prison. And then Red said, after hearing these stories again and again, he said, look, I'm an institutionalized man. What he was saying is, 
that he could not see a better day. What he was saying is that he was restricted to his circumstances. He could not see beyond a, a, a life that didn't include bars and, and limitations and, and madness and, and inhumane, inhumanity. But while Red was stuck on earthly things, Dufresne had a rock pick, something about the size of a toothbrush. And for 19 years, he picked against the wall of the prison and he put a picture of Marilyn Monroe and some of you have seen that. He picked and he picked, he picked and he picked. And then one day he decided that he wanted to get on the other side of hell <laughs> to enter into his heavenly experiences that he was enjoying in his mind. And on the night he decided to escape, there's this thunderstorm, and so he gets out, and he knew that he had to time it perfectly, and he took his tool, and he, and he drove it through the, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the piping, and finally it burst through. But to, to, to go through the pipe meant that he had to call through 500 yards of sewage, human remains, and mice, and maggots, and all kinds of, you know, just smelly pew. He actually threw up going through, but he kept on crawling. He was able to see beyond the sewage. He was able to see, see beyond the smell, beyond the struggle, because on the other side, there were all those things that he was able to see in his mind. I wonder today, who are you, Red or Eddie Dufresne? Are you going to concentrate on the sewage in your life? Are you going to concentrate on the things you can't control? But are you going to do like David? I will lift up my eyes. Unto the hills. What's over there at the hills? My help. My help. My help. I'm sick, but my help. I'm tired, but my help. It hurts, but my help. Who's my help? My help comes. My help comes. My help comes from the Lord. He made the heavens and the earth. He's in charge of all of my circumstances. If you're saved, sanctify the Lord's day. Spirit-filled, suffering. You can see heaven while hell is staring you in the face. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name.